right, if you would uh, open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1, and uh, we're going to continue in our series. There's a couple booklets left in the back, um, and uh, feel free to get those. We'll produce, uh, I'm going to print up a couple more. Um, as you can see, we kind of shifted things around a little bit, and uh, which uh, put the speakers up in the air so you didn't get blasted when you went to take communion, and we uh, closed that off, which during or um, between services, we'll open it up so you can skedaddle that way if you'd like, but trying to flow everything around that way and pushing for that to be a uh, hopefully a more uh, permanent coffee shop space uh, as we just kind of get uh, further into uh, this incredible experience here. So we're in Joshua chapter 1, and I found this week that um, a lot of commentators and scholars don't uh, spend too much time on passages like uh, we're going to go through today. Um, it seems that these kind of uh, these ver- these verses or these passages are not as necessary and, and maybe as interesting as an introduction and not as exciting as some of the more battle-filled passages we'll see in Joshua. Um, but it's it's as if like like when you watch a movie, um, as I just read, different people writing about this passage, like they fast forward to through the boring parts to the really exciting parts. Um, but and I've done that quite a bit with uh, movies because um, I'm just very impatient like that. But in our approach to scriptures, we probably shouldn't be like that because oftentimes you skip to the chapters uh, that are most exciting. Like next week, we talk about Rahab and this, you know, great, incredible experience that uh, happened at Jericho. And if you do that, you kind of miss the, the richness of obscurity, if you will, the, the small stuff that I think is actually really meaningful for us to learn from. So in chapter one, uh, we're going to look at the second half, to, uh, verses 10 through 18. Um, Joshua, as we talked about last week, has just been commissioned as the leader. He had been commissioned sometime uh, prior to that uh, by God, telling uh, Moses to lay your hands on Joshua, and he is going to be the leader, and you have to share your authority with him for a time. And now Moses has died, and he is the man, the head leader, and he finds himself having to navigate through a, a really major transition uh, in leadership, obviously, and a major alignment or maybe realignment, I should say, of practices they've had for the last 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And he's about to make some big changes. God-driven and God-commanded uh, changes, but big changes. And whenever there are major changes in a group of people, um, especially when it means you're going to jettison what you know as life or what you've known as routine for a long time, there is always going to be uh, opportunity for resistance, for people to feel very insecure, uh, for people to be really upset and just have full-blown conflict at times. And people in all groups, especially churches, quite frankly, can oftentimes become very defensive when you start challenging traditional ways of thinking or traditional ways of doing things or long-established ways of doing things, maybe I should say, um, and even just familiar leaders or familiar locations. Like when you're going to move or when you're going to go and make some big program changes, um, like church splitting defensive. There's not too many churches, it seems, that split, or at least the beginning of a split, it starts with like something major theological, though it does a lot of times start there. It's more like, we don't like the way you're doing things. Or we don't like the way this church is going or whatever. And so it, it starts with these minor things that, that seem minor, I guess, when you really think about them. And I really believe that it's pretty foolish to argue about uh, some things or some changes just aren't that important, like the color of carpet. Like, you know, we want to change it to brown. Well, we like red or whatever. Who really cares? Is it really that big of a deal? But a lot of times it is. 
Um, we sing hymns. We don't sing hymns. Those kind of things end up being major conflicts that I think are just, quite frankly, foolish to argue about. Um, whether we should have the, a buddy of mine who actually merged with an older church, uh, they had arguments for over a year about whether or not to have the Christian flag in the service. Now, if you know even there was a Christian flag, I guess there is, with like a cross or something on it, but we're going to have the Christian flag and no coffee in the sanctuary. And it was like, seriously. And those are the things they were discussing and arguing about. But I will say that um, a difficult change that means choosing between familiar routine and following God's word is probably something we should argue about and fight about and put a flag in about. Um, as Joshua goes to share the, the news of the changes, like, hey guys, I'm, I'm numero uno now, I'm the guy that God's going to speak to and we're going to command, he is going to encounter conflict from people flat out just don't want to change. They like the way things have been, they're comfortable, um, it's easy for them. And in essence, what Joshua is going to do is remind them of something. He's not telling them something new, which I think is hugely important. He's reminding them of something that we probably all need to be reminded of constantly because we so easily forget it. And that is, this is not all there is. This, this world we live in is temporary. It's a speed bump to eternity. And while we are here, we're in God's story, not ours. And we are on God's mission, not ours. And God is the one calling the shots, not us. We, we should never forget that. That all of this is for God's glory. I think we, we sometimes get into a very despairing sometimes idea that this is all there is. If this is all there is, we should despair. Because it's pretty broken, it's pretty messed up. But it's not all there is. And as we live here, as God gives us one year or a hundred years to live here, we have something to do. And this is what Joshua is going to remind them of. Now, Joshua, though, as he, as he does this, and we begin to see this, he's a very accomplished general. We've kind of talked about this. He's a, he's a man's man. He, he is a fighter. He is not some pansy leader in the very traditional, flat-out, superficial sense. Uh, but he is told three times to be strong and courageous. And I think that's because it's a very tremendous temptation, especially for leaders, to, when it comes down to actually leading it's very tempting for them to speak the words that men would like to hear that make them happy and not the words of God that actually will make them holy. It's very tempting to go to the applause or away from the booze. And so, those who disobey God's word, though, this is where Joshua is coming from, those who disobey God's word, even if they thrive or they succeed or they become popular in the eyes of this world, they are not the ones that are strong and courageous. Those are the ones, quite frankly, that are weak and cowardly. It's the very antithesis of what God has asked us to be. They are the ones, those who disobey God's commands, as difficult as they might be at the time to follow, whose direction, purpose, and joy changes every moment like the blowing of the wind because they have nothing to center them. Those are the ones whose feelings and thoughts and past experience or even misguided hopes govern all the decisions they make, not God's Word. The ones who disobey God's Word are the ones who, quite frankly, are powerless over sin. They're fearful before men, and they're scared of any difficulties or hardships that might come into the life. Those are the ones who are weak and cowardly, the ones who disobey God's Word. But those, I believe, as you're going to see Joshua, who unapologetically, 
and uncompromisingly follow God's word. While they may not appear successful, they may not appear very popular in the eyes of the world, or even smart. They may appear foolish, just like a guy I know named Jesus, who looked like the greatest fool ever. They are the ones who are strong and courageous. And so, so God gives Joshua a command in the first chapter we saw last week of follow my word, follow my word, do what I said, don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right, just go. And now we're going to see whether Joshua is going to do that and whether the people are going to follow him doing that. So let's read in Joshua chapter 1, verse 10. <clears throat> That's going to sound good on the iPod. All right, so verse 10 says this, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, Prepare your provisions, for within three days you're going to pass over the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock will remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses the servant of the Lord gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, laugh, laugh, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So, Joshua does not hesitate. Just as Abraham was told, hey, go leave your land. He doesn't go, hmm, we think about this for a while. Joshua obeys God's commands. And there's nothing to consider, nothing to pray about. He simply acts without excuse, without complaint, without delay, which I wish all my children would do all the time, but that is not the case. And I begin to see, quite frankly, a little sidebar here. As I'm like telling my kid, I love him, I love all my kids, but I tell them the same things it seems like all the time, over and over again, and yet they don't seem to learn. You know what I'm talking about? You're like... Seriously, i got to tell you again, I start going, dang, that's how God must feel with me. I mean, seriously. Like, come on, this is the wise way, the smart way, I'm authoritative, I can spank your butt. Don't you understand? Yeah, Sam, don't you get it? It's like, dang. So I guess that's a pretty good picture of it. But he doesn't delay, he obeys. And after hearing God's word, he proceeds to command the officers to command the people to act. So who are these officers and if you go back in Scripture, there's several kind of different levels of leadership that develop as they're led out of uh, uh, Egypt and toward we see them today. In Exodus 18, which is just a little bit after, they go into Midian after uh, crossing the Red Sea and spending some time. They go into Midian, they see um, Moses' uh, father-in-law, Jethro, and Jethro sees Moses like judging all these people, like basically making decisions and, and mediating for them and conflicts, thousands and thousands of people. And Jethro's like, dude, this is going to totally overwhelm you. You need to like, like 
delegate some authority here. And so he does. And so in Exodus 18, you see him uh, organize the tribes with chiefs and, and different heads. And so they, they kind of have a level of leadership there. And then later in Exodus 24, as God is about to give them the law, he says, find 70 elders and 70 elders come up with Moses and they have like basically a big party at the feet of, of God on this mountain right before Moses and Joshua continue all the way up and, and get the law uh, from God. And then later in Numbers 11, uh, I believe verse 16, uh, Moses is instructed to gather 70 elders to help him with the burden again uh, of leading these people because it's a lot of people. So these are probably the, the, the people that that Joshua is speaking to, or speaking about, and in other words, he is the primary leader for Israel, okay? He is, he is the guy that, that God commands, and then he calls the shots uh, as he's submitted to the Lord, but he is also working amongst a team of men. He is not totally solo and fighting this battle by himself. He has a team of men who are leading, and there must come a time in the church, like when you first start a church, um, when you first are a group, like we're in my garage, it was kind of like, you know, Sam's going to make the decisions because he's pretty much the only one at this point. And as you grow, people step into leadership. People step up to where it's not, it's not just Sam and, and everyone else. It's you have guys, you have build a team of elders, you have deacons and you have members, and people begin to lead and own. And there comes a time in the mission of a church. And there's a size of church where that's, I think, impossible at some point. Where you go in, it's like a 5,000 person church, and you're like, how am I ever going to get involved here? How am I ever going to lead here? And we're at a good size now. It's great. More would be, honestly, scary to me if we truly believe in shepherding people. But there comes a time when, when you look at the mission of the church, the local body, and you begin to own and take responsibility for it. It's less, or it's not an event you attend anymore. It's something you're a part of, it's something you're helping to shape. And I think that, for me, what I learned from this passage is it's not that Joshua commands its leaders, it's that he has leaders actually to command. He has people who have stepped up and said, look, I'm willing to die too. I'm willing to take criticism too. I'm willing to lead too. Hard to find. There are a lot of people that want to be leaders that don't really know what it means to be a leader. Like, there's a lot of people that aren't going to like you. You're going to have to... Push people, command people, direct people, lead people, help people, shepherd people, take responsibility for their sin at some level. No thanks. It's better just to kind of sit. I don't want to be an athlete. I'd rather be a spectator. I can criticize, right? Dude, I can't believe he's running like that. Well, at least he's running, right? Sit back and eat rather than farm. Sit back and, and watch the fight go on and not actually fight yourself. And so... The leaders here, they are there to command and to listen and to act. And they are in, in some way chosen by God, chosen by, by Joshua, seeing that they're, they're going to be the leaders. But I think that they actually are willing to do it because they believe in Joshua, but more importantly, they believe in the mission. They believe in actually what's going on at, through Israel and, and for us who will be at our church. Because the truth is, if you don't, if you don't trust your leadership, if you don't trust your leadership and you don't believe that they're actually, um, the, the body is moving in any direction, it actually has a mission to accomplish, I don't know how doing what I'll call gospel work could ever feel like anything but painful duty. 
And that's not what I would ever want it to feel. I would never want it to feel like you just have to discipline yourself constantly and just fight every little bit of you to come and gather with the family or to be there to support one another. To me, that's a, we're missing something if that's what's happening. But there's always going to be, I believe, a smaller percentage of people, which is represented maybe by these officers, who fully embrace the identity as God's people, working together, as opposed to the majority of people, quite frankly, in all churches, that work for themselves most of the time. That's kind of our default mode for all of us. But even at our church and other churches as well, there are members and deacons and elders who have chosen this. Here's what they've chosen. To deny, I think, their own agendas, their personal desires, to follow God, but also to lead others to follow God. And that's a big deal. The, the people that are sitting back in kids' road right now teaching children about Jesus is huge. Huge. The people that come and clean the toilets during the week might not be the number one job, but all the members, quite frankly, on the list to do it, including the pastors. Okay? Yeah, we're scrubbing the poop toilets like everyone else. It's not Joshua up here and, you know, everyone. No. Everyone is involved because they're part of something. Part of something. Now, the thing that I, I love, though, is that they lead not by, by rallying the troops. Let's go! Let's fight! Let's go! We're going to do this! You notice what they say? They simply share the vision. They share the command that God's given them. Joshua says, God says we're going across the Jordan. Officers go over. We're going across the Jordan. They're sharing the vision and Think about this for a second. If you are a member of this church, or you are a leader in this church, you're responsible to know the vision, the mission of what we're doing here. And I sat down several years ago with the elders when we were trying to figure out, honestly, we had a vision and I don't think anyone knew it. First thing I sat down, I said, okay guys, what's 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 the mission of the church? We kind of like, you keep one of those cricket sounds, you know? Waiting for the first, first person to say, what are our core values? Worship, truth. I mean, you kind of just, and I was like, oh my gosh, I have failed. I have failed to communicate the vision. So I ask, and not, not in necessarily response, but do you know even the mission of our church? Because it's actually quite simple. And people create really, really super creative ones that sound like, what? Ours is really pretty simple. Sent to proclaim the gospel and teach people to live like Jesus. And the funny thing is, like, Joshua didn't go, hey guys, I got an idea. Here's what we're going to do. He said, God told me this. Here's our mission. Well, that's the same thing we did. It's not like we invented something that sounded creative. It's actually called the Great Commission. Pretty, pretty simple. It's what Jesus told us to do. And so we just go, let's just take that one. That's pretty good. Okay? And we'll just use that. Because Jesus told us to. Our core values. Do you even know our core values, right? Well, yeah, it's uh, gospel truth, gospel community, gospel living. We didn't just make, we actually believe those. And so the officers simply lead the, the success of, of Israel at this point in going in is because they have guys that know what the mission is, they have guys that communicate the mission, and they're going to lead others in following God. That's what we need. This is more than just an event, more than just a gathering of, let's do something really creative to make people think we're cool. I could care less if we're cool. 
We're trying to proclaim the gospel because that's what God's told us to do. And one final note I will say as we move into verse 12 is that uh, this will be the second time they cross a body of water. So they, they crossed over, uh, obviously, the Red Sea when Moses was leading them out of Egypt. And at that time, they left with incredible haste. They, they, they left, and that's what we celebrate the Passover. We have these different bitter herbs and, and, and unleavened bread and different things like that to represent with the haste that they, they left Egypt, basically running from sin that enslaved them. That's kind of the picture, right? They're running from sin. Well, this is different. These people are not running from anything anymore. And that's why he says prepare. Because instead of having helpless bricklayers and broken people run from sin that enslaves, we have strong and courageous soldiers preparing for battle against sin that could very easily entangle them. That could draw them away from God and their idolatry. So it's very different. They know what they're going into. They're preparing for battle as opposed to running uh, weak from sin, which is a different mentality. But the implication is here that they understand this world. They understand what they're going into, what's happening, where they're going, that they are fulfilling God's promises. They are conscious of God's mission. They are empowered by God's strength. They are ready to move forward in faith out of the wilderness to do something, to battle. That is what they're doing. They're fully prepared for that. Verse 12 says this. This is where it gets a little interesting. I think a lot of the commentators just kind of skip over this, but maybe I'm not so. It says, And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses the servant commanded you, saying. And he tells him this, this word. Now, Joshua commands the officers to go command the people, but then he goes personally, it seems, to these particular three tribes that we'll call the Transjordan tribes. And these are the tribes that had settled. If you look, uh, let's put uh, that first map up. I think there's a map. Okay, so over on Edom and Moab over here, so you can see Egypt down there, and I'll have a couple other maps for you. But these are the tribes that had settled on the eastern side of the Jordan River. This is before they had um, crossed over. And what had happened was, you can read it in um, Numbers 32, but what happened was, several years after the infamous rock incident with Moses, right, who hits the rock and God's like, dude, you just royally screwed up, you're not going in anymore. And what happened was, Israel continued into the land um, of the Amorites, which is really that whole side, and, and they kept going north. And as they approached um, the, uh, close to the Jordan River, they actually battled um, a couple kings. They had asked to peacefully go through their land. Like, do you just want to let us the land? Because the promised land really was on the, the west side, generally, of, of the Jordan River. And so he said, you know, can we just go through this land? They're like, no way, we want to battle. Like, all right, dude, we'll battle. So they battled, and they defeated these two kings. Okay? And so these two kings, I think they're called uh, Sahan and Og, on the east side of the Jordan. And so shortly before, I mean, shortly, relatively speaking, before Moses' death, in uh, Numbers 32, um, what happened was these two tribes came and asked if they could have the possession on the east side. And they said, can we, can we go over there? So actually we'll read it, in, uh, I'll read it in Numbers 32. It's kind of an interesting little, little passage 
What happens is, um, it says, can you assign our inheritance on this side so we don't have to go over? And Moses is ticked. Moses is like, what? And he kind of senses a little bit of a like, conspiracy here. Like, you guys just don't want to go fight. And so here's what he says to him in Numbers uh, 32, verse 14. He says, behold, this is opinion of the idea. Behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel, exclamation point. So I think he's yelling at this point. For if you turn away from falling in, he will again abandon them in the wilderness and he will destroy all his people. He's like, we're not going to do Numbers 13 and 14 all over again. Where the spies went in, they came back, oh, it's too scary. We're not going 40 years, boom. We're not replaying that, guys. We are going, so he thinks they're scared to go in the land again. He's like, you guys are just like your daddies. Notice they say, verse 16, Then they came near to him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we will take up arms ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. So he says, no, 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 no. We'll build our houses, we'll build our cities, but when it comes time to go, we'll go. So Moses is like, all right, that's fine. So he gives them their cities, he gives them inheritance, and then he says, you're going to go, though, when it's commanded. And if not, there's going to be serious consequences, not just for them, but for all of Israel. And so he agrees, and he brings in Joshua, and he brings in the priest, and he says, I want you guys to hear this agreement of what's going to happen. Because Moses already knows he's not going in the land. Okay? So, what I think we see here, we're Joshua approaching these guys. He sends his officers to talk to most of, the, most of the tribes, but then he goes and says to these tribes in particular, it doesn't say the officers are in there, so I'm going to assume that he talks to them personally. And what I see here is a leader who's actually leading like they're supposed to. Now, Joshua knows where the greatest conflict is going to be in terms of pushback to go into this land. And what he does is he's these guys, because they've got their homes, they've got their families established for, for a while now, he knows that they are most likely going to rebel or grumble first. And so what he does, and what I believe all God-fearing, Bible-believing, gospel-centered leaders do, is they have the hard conversations with the hardest people. They don't delegate it out. They go, you know what, I'm going to take this one, and I'm going to have a hard conversation and so whether you are a boss, a husband, a father, a, a pastor, a person that has been charged with responsibility to shepherd somebody, there are some things, some conversations, some decisions that you just cannot delegate. And you have to take responsibility for. Unfortunately, it seems the sin in us, especially as husbands and dads, is a desire to abdicate that responsibility when it gets most difficult. And go, well, honey, you do what you, you know. And you let the wife step into a void that you've created because of your refusal to lead. And this happens in churches. This happens in businesses. It happens all the time. The leaders, the true leaders, go and have the hard conversations. We don't hide from tough people. You don't avoid them. You don't run from them. You confront them in love and with the word. Joshua doesn't like go and flex his chest and be like, leader now, let's go. 
or I'm throwing down the smack. Come on. Got all these officers over here. They're on my side. What? What are you going to do? Okay? No, it's not what he does. That's why, that, again, the sin in us often does that when we think, oh, they're not going to like this. This happened to me. <laughs> not that I was a difficult person uh, in, in when I was teaching high school, but I had the, you know, I kind of had the reputation to do whatever the snarf I wanted, right? So there were some things I just thought were stupid. And when I think something's stupid, I go, not going to do this. So what happened was, man, I just thought of this story. What happened was they were having a leadership like, the teachers get together for, like, a leadership. This is, like, prior to school, first couple days of school. Like, we want to do some leadership bonding together. I'm like, oh, man. You hear, like, leadership bonding. I'm thinking, like, you know, catch you and, you know, like, sit in a circle type of thing where everyone's sitting on each other's lap. And I'm like, I am not doing that crap, okay? So I didn't even say it out loud. I might have a little bit. But I wasn't, like, not doing it. But what happened is the guy who was leading it, who happened to be in charge of leadership, comes to me. He's like, hey. Really want you at this leadership thing, and I looked at him and said, "I know what you're doing." And he goes, "What?" I said, "You know that I'm the one person that really doesn't want to be at this leadership. But you think that if you come to me and get me on board, you can get everyone else on board?" And he's like, "No, I mean, maybe." You know, and I'm like, "Yeah, I know how to deal with hard people because I am one. Okay, I understand." what that's like. And so that's what you do. But with, with Joshua here, he doesn't come and just flex his muscle or manipulate. He comes with the Word of God. And he just tells him what God said. And leaders like this, they step into what is most difficult and I think most uncomfortable, and they intend to turn their eyes not to themselves, not to their like prowess as a good leader, but to the Lord. And that's what Joshua does. They don't flee like cowards. They don't fight like bullies, which is my tendency, quite frankly. They walk and they be strong and courageous in the Lord. So in this case, Joshua goes to the people who are most comfortable at the time, and he tells them that God commands them to be uncomfortable. He commands them to say, you're supposed to help your brothers. You're supposed to help us go across the land and fight this incredible battle. Although you have very secure homes, no one's fighting you right now. You have women and children that you'd have to leave and be away from for five to seven years. How excited would you be to do that? He knows that they are going to kick back. And so he emphasizes at this point what is a strong sense of unity. He says, we are one people. We are one family. And the Bible, if you didn't know this, calls those who love Jesus a family. He calls this local church a family. And I think because of the way you see people go in and out of churches and not commit to them really, the church seems to have lost the sense a little bit. And it's become an event. It's become something that's dutiful. It's become this thing that is not, um, I guess, relationally strong, but I would say more isn't biblical. And what happens is that we live coming in with certain expectations of how the family should function. Not willing to admit that our families are totally jacked up, like every single one is, but we go, well, I know how the ideal family should work, and when I come into a church, this is how a family should function. And then when it doesn't function that way, the way we expect, where there's actually tension and you're asked to do maybe difficult things, we justify our refusal to actually love the family and to serve the family and to sacrifice for the family because, well, 
you know, it's going to cost me something, and clearly you're not functioning the way a family does. Seriously? I don't know what family we could say is perfect. The reality is we are a pile of sinners screwed up. And God puts us together as a family, so we've got the freaky uncle, the weird brother, you know, you've got all these people that we go, man, we're family though. We're family, so I can pop you in the nose and go, yeah, we're wrestling, dude. We're family. And the churches seem, I think, to lose this a little bit. And there's a great temptation, as there was for these tribes, to concern ourselves with our own little allotment, our own little inheritance, our own family, our own security, and we actually feel righteous in doing that. If they do that, it's sinful for them. If they use their family, their family, to justify the fact they're not going to go and work with the family, it's sinful for them. So throughout Joshua, there's always this concern for all of Israel. It's always like all of Israel, this family experience. And, and, and think about this for a second. Do you ever consider that idea of, of how does your presence or lack thereof impact all of us? Or, or how do your, your contributions, your time, your energy, your money, or your selfishness hinder the community? How does it grow or how does it hinder it? Do, do you think it even has an impact on it? Or, as we'll see later in Israel with a guy named Achan, how does your sin impact more than just you? How does the hidden sin that right now you have told no one, that you have confessed, actually impact our church? Because it does. And you're seeing right now in the, um, down in Georgia, the hidden sin of a pastor that's going to impact thousands of people. In the New Testament, let me just tell you what the church is described as. Sounds very similar. It says that we are one people. And there's lots of passages. I've only selected a couple. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, says this, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are members of the household of God. If you have confessed Jesus, you have come into something. You've been adopted into a family with brothers and sisters. It was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom, Jesus, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together, being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The question is, can that happen apart? We are supposed to be growing closer together, but often I wonder how much time we spend talking about how different we are. We are one people. It also says we need each other. passage you're probably familiar with, Galatians chapter 6 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Wait a second. Law sounds like it's kind of like a commandment. Bear one another's burdens. It does say later that everyone has his own load to bear, but there's a difference between load and burdens. How do you fulfill bearing another's burden within the body of Christ if you're not in the body of Christ? 
The sin in us causes us, I think, to ask more often, what's in it for me, as opposed to, I ask, what's in it for you? Or, how can I be served versus how can I serve? I mean, that's just the mentality, let's be honest. That's my, that was my mentality until I was a pastor. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, I was such a sinful son of a gun. And I was an elder, thinking all about myself. We need each other. I don't think we see that we need each other. We, we pretend how strong we are when the Bible says you are stinking weak. You actually need others. And lastly, it also says that we have a unique role. In Ephesians 4 says it this way, verse 15, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself out in love. In other words, the mission is less, the mission is incomplete, inefficient, lacking power, without you. We're less without you. And I know a lot of people come into churches and come into a body and this is where Joshua's saying like, hey, we're, we're one. And they come in and they're like, well, I don't know where my place is. Where's my part? It's like, I don't know necessarily either, but I do know there's a part. The body in 1 Corinthians 12 talks about all these things. There's ears and there's, there's hands and feet and all these different things. And the ear doesn't go, dude, hand, I don't need you. It's like, yeah, who's going to use the Q-tip, buddy? I mean, we don't, we don't talk about that, right? There's all these parts of the body. And everybody's like, dude, I want to be like the, you know, the, the bicep. That's what I want to be. It's like, hey, I don't know what you are, but you're a part. You think about a body missing its parts. So the Bible says that we're, we're one, we're a family, we're together, we, and we move together. And if we don't, we move in such a way where we're less. We move in such a way with, you know, Basically, if a leg's missing, we're going to hop into the battlefield. Good luck, one-legged man. You're not going to last too long, unless you're the Black Knight, which you could like totally beat everybody, right? <laughs> and lose a couple legs. You know? I've got a doll, a Black Knight doll. It's pretty rad. So anyway, catch this, okay? Catch this, because this, this, is, this is going to really bother you. I'm preparing you, right? This, is, this, is, this could make you angry. Just ask yourself why you're angry. And you'll probably go to place where I think you misinterpreted it. Okay, whatever. But it's noteworthy what, what Joshua doesn't say. He doesn't say, come with us so that we can make sure we have unity. He doesn't say, come with us because, you know, without you we'll fail. Come with us because, you know, you just, oh, you got awesome fighting skills, guys. He says, come with us because God commanded it. You ever think about that? We're always so trying to get people to be part of the body of Christ by listing all the benefits that they should, will get from it, which I think there are innumerable, and I've told you some. But at what point does a conversation start and should end at, God's commanded you to be part of the body. God's commanded you to be part of the family. End of discussion. Well, I don't like that. I'll take it up with God. Verse 16. The people respond to his appeal, and they answer... All that you have commanded us we will do. Whenever you send us, we'll go just as we obeyed Moses in all things. So we will obey you. And Joshua is probably thinking, oh my goodness, that's the mentality. Because they say, you know, everyone, everyone's going to follow you on our board. And if anyone doesn't, we should execute them. Whoa, that's a pretty good vote of confidence that we're going to go forward. 
But there's always been this tension, honestly, between what we say and what we do. For everyone. All of us. There's a, there's a sinful tension between what we actually say and what we do. And people say a lot of things. Let me just give you a couple that I've heard in recent weeks. They say that they love Jesus, but their actions clearly tell you they love their sin. They say that they respect the leaders, and yet they refuse to listen to any biblical instruction or godly advice that they give. They say that they believe in the Word of God, but they refuse to read it, meditate on it, or do what it says. God is not pleased with appearances, and you don't fool Him. You fool a lot of other people, but you don't fool Him with some kind of spiritual, religious-sounding fluff. The people affirm here that, that Joshua has commanded them, and he, they, they say it. We agree to go, just like we did with Moses. How, it's funny how they forget Numbers of Deuteronomy. That's been written down as a witness. Like, we'll do just as we obeyed Moses. Are you serious? This is the, the, the attitude you're going to have? Because we know how you obeyed. It's pretty much a record of the faithlessness of your parents. And some of you who were younger... We'll obey, we'll obey, although we've totally rebelled every time. And as the story unfolds, you begin to see that Israel doesn't follow a lot of the instructions that Joshua gives. And we see, and I think they know at some level, that he will not be able to rely on their obedience. And the truth is that we can't rely on on the words and actions and applause of sinful men, of which we all are. That can't be where our hope is. We should see clearly that our dependence, and this is what Joshua in the beginning, he said, trust me, be faithful to me, obey my word, because our dependence is forever and always on God and not men. Because if it's on men, if it's on a relationship, if it's on a boss, if it's on anything that has to do with this world, you will be hurt or disappointed. Our obedience is never dependent either. Check this out. Joshua's obedience and our obedience is never dependent on whether he or she, they, is obedient. Catch that? Think about your marriages. I committed to my wife based on my willingness to obey, not hers. But you see marriages breaking all the time like, well, she did this, he did this. That's not what I committed to. The only prerequisite for my wife, me maintaining marriage to her, is that she's breathing. She's alive. Our obedience to God is not dependent upon someone else's obedience. A commitment to follow God's truth does not rely on someone else's commitment to follow it. That's difficult. Know that our strength and our courage is especially tested at those times. But we're supposed to be faithful and the other person is not. That's when the rubber meets the road, so to speak. And that's why God is always saying, trust me. Trust me. It really is quite irrelevant if the people say, oh, we're going to obey you. Yeah, we'll kill anyone that does it. Because the fact is they're going to fight against that. And Joshua is responsible to be faithful and to trust so the people confess they're going to follow. And this is where I think is, and we'll, we'll close with this, this is where I think the, the, the punch is. It's awesome. 
they commit to follow, but you have to wonder why there wasn't any pushback at all. Why they didn't, like, bring up anything that was seemingly obvious to all of us, like, you know, they've got their homes, they've got their security, you're asking us to leave our families. And I think it's because they truly trust Joshua. We go, well, why do they trust Joshua? Because they know him, they spend all this time with him, eh, maybe. But I think that it comes down to this. Notice God didn't pause to remind Joshua of Numbers 32. He didn't go, okay, get up, go command the people. By the way, don't forget about Rumid and Gad, because we made that agreement, and we want to make sure that they, you know, go with you guys. He didn't say that. Why? Because Joshua knows the word. He knows God's commands. He remembers God's commands. He meditates on God's commands. And he communicates God's commands. And the people go, dang, this guy knows God's commands. I imagine that Reuben and Gad may remember themselves and thinking, shh, don't say They hear these commands going across the Jordan like, hey, aren't we supposed to go? Don't, don't. Think about that for a second. They don't remind him. They don't come up and go, hey, hey, uh, we're supposed to leave our families for the next five years, remember? And go battle with you, and probably some of us will die. Um, so I just want to remind you, because God said that a while. No, Joshua remembers that. They trust their leader. They have confidence in their leader because he proved that he knows the Word, that He makes His decisions by the Word, that is you committed to obeying the Word that has been spoken and not that just is spoken now. He is immune, if you will, from outside pressures. He is doing exactly what God commanded Him in the very first verses. Do not turn to the left or the right of everything I've said. And He remembers. And this is the key For anyone who is a leader, whether you are a pastor or an employer or a community member, particularly for every man and every husband and every father and every friend, people will trust, obey, follow, and participate when they know that you are submitted to God's Word. Because they see it and they hear it. Wives can have confidence in following their husbands if they know they are submitted to Jesus. The problem comes when they begin to abuse their leadership or abdicate, which clearly shows that they are not in submission to Jesus. I used to sit down as a high school teacher. Girls would come up crying about their boyfriends. And I would flat out tell them the problem. Like, what's the problem? He's not submitted to Jesus. What's the big deal? He makes all his decisions based off what he wants because he is Lord. And a leader who says, I am not Lord and I am submitted to God's Word, will make different decisions, even painful ones. Because God has commanded it. We must make sure that our leaders, whoever those are, that the disappointments they might have are governed by God's commands, that desires are governed by God's warnings, that our decisions are governed by God's wisdom, that our aim is to bring God glory through obedience and not glory to ourselves through disobedience. It's clear that Joshua is not a guy who is out for his own personal success, 
who is out for own military victories. He's not interested in popularity. He's not afraid to speak the hard words because he's striving, striving to uphold the honor of God by obeying every single word that he has said. Can you say the same? Even if you screw up, covered in the blood of Jesus, but is that your pursuit? Is that how you discipline yourself? To pursue what God has had you do, what have you do. That's a difficult, difficult thing, but it's a godly thing. We'll close with communion, and I want you to consider communion a little bit differently today. Maybe this is a stretch, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Joshua proclaimed God's word, and the people responded with one voice. One voice is they, one voice. Whether that's just the, the three tribes, or whether that's all the tribes, it's not clear, but they're speaking with one voice. And quite frankly, communion is our, our one voice. This is the one voice that we speak with. It is a shared meal. It's not just some individual thing. It is a shared meal, symbolic, a family feast, where we declare our mutual allegiance to Jesus, our participation in His sacrifice, and our shared identity as the people of God. It is much bigger than just the thing you do on Sunday. It is in the same way Joshua was saying, are you in? And you declaring, I'm in. Consider, this is not a simply personal, private experience that Jesus died for a church, for a body, adopted a group of people into a family, that this is a corporate, together, public confessional. Although I don't think people should be watching each other, God is watching you participate in this body. And so as you confess, when you come up, think about these things. As your public confessional, first you confess trust in the Word of God and Jesus Himself. Belief in the Gospel. Hopefully symbolized by your identification in baptism to begin with. And from that point, this perpetuates that same thing that you did on that day where you said, I died and I was risen again, a new life in Jesus. It's the first thing you confess when you take communion. You also confess, think about this, trust in leaders that are submitted to the Lord. If they're not, run! But you trust as they did with Joshua because you know what? This guy is commanding God's word. These elders believe in God's word. This church is being led in a God-governed way. Now I realize there are visitors here. There are people that aren't part of the body. But you think about that. If if you are part of a different body, do you trust your leaders? Like Joshua, as he trusts the Lord. Because not all leaders trust the Lord. I understand that. That happens. Third, as you confess... You trust in a desire to live like Jesus. Knowing that you screw up. Knowing that make you, you make a mistake. But you confess, this is like, again, it's like a wardrobe. You put on your Jesus suit up here. This is my desire. I want to live more like Jesus. I want to be governed by Jesus. I want Him to be the Lord of my life and not just my Savior. And then you also confess that taking the body of the bread, that you can't do it. And that the Spirit is the one that empowers you. And you confess that you are on board with wherever God would lead you. And wherever He's leading us. 
that's a pretty major confession. If you're not a Christian, if you've not believed in Jesus as your only salvation, if you have not confessed that His blood and His death is what makes you clean, that His resurrection is what gives you new life so that you can be in the presence of God and with Him, don't take communion. And if you can't confess those other things we talked about, if you are a believer, you consider whether you should take communion today. You really do. I think we get into the routine of just, oh, I'm just, you know, taking the bread, pass the cup. Consider it's an act of worship and an act of identification and an act of unity as a body as we move forward to do some crazy things for Jesus because we love him more than anything else. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the example that Joshua gives us. For a man who commands by the word of God to be one body, fighting together, loving together as a family. And I pray for that spirit to be in our own people. I pray, Father, that we will see this experience as a worship gathering, honoring you as the family of God, needing each other, having a place here to be a part of. Not because it's cooler or better or whatever than the world, but because it is of you. And it is right and is what you designed us for. Let us see with the eternal perspective, Lord God. Let us declare that we are on mission with you wherever you will lead. And let us confess our faith in you to change us from the inside out that we might honor you until the day we die. In the blood of Jesus, we hope and pray. Amen.